My guest today is the RVP of pre-sales at Aptio Premier. He's described by colleagues as follows. He's an aspiring leader, a very driven individual, and I can only highly recommend him. Greg is a clear expert in his field, capable of taking technical detail or broader, broader thought leadership and expertly managing his team. Greg is an optimistic and genuine person and it was a pleasure to work with him. He is a natural leader whose ability to motivate and deliver results has been clearly demonstrated throughout his career. Greg Holmes, you're very welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and, and what, that, what that was like for you. Absolutely. Happy to. So I, I grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, um, you know, where, you know, you get to play outside, you get a lot of friends that you go and do different sports with. And of course, you know, uh, learning in, in such an environment, I, I went through the education system there. I went through University of Sydney, um, studied science. You know, I thought I wanted to be a scientist at, at most points of my early development. And then, you know, shot out of university into a, um, a software company. Uh, because I, I felt like it leveraged my my skills in in coding and in in mathematics, and in the end, I, I ended up into a role that was very much focused on customers, on talking to people, discussing concepts, and helping convince them about the the product benefits and and how the business solutions would would help them. So it was it was a very interesting transition for me from the world of academia and studies to the world of work. And then for me, it was also, you know, going from being in Australia to then having an interest in the, the wider world, you know, what mm. else is out there. I'm curious because you, you mentioned coding as well, and it's something I did prior to going pre-sales. But there was always a niche in me to go beyond that into a world where you're in front of, in a customer-facing role. And I'm just curious to know if, if that's, that was something that you experienced too. Yeah, definitely. I, I think my coding was never, I never wanted to stay as a developer, I don't think. I, I always see it as a key to, to unlocking more, right? To finding quick ways to demonstrate that something could be done um, or, or working with my more technical colleagues at helping them understand really what does the customer want. And for me, I, I think it's one of those skills that if you applied good programming skills to so many different you know, jobs and roles, it would it would help you along the way, right? If I was looking at my forecast as a sales rep, maybe I'd be able to go and run through with some standard rules with some programming and come up with uh, an automated or a, a special way of, of judging my own calls about my different customers and how well I think we would do. So I think it's a it's a great skill and you know both of my children I've encouraged them to to do at least some of it, right? As as some of their upbringing and their they're, they're I'm actually fascinated by this because I believe that from coding, I learned to think abstractly. And I can't remember when it happened, but there was a time where suddenly things made sense to me that didn't make sense before. And they were always at an abstract level. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those kind of skill sets that you can derive from a technical coding background that are relevant in, in leadership? So th there's many different things. I mean, some of the, the base elements of understanding, you know, when you're coding, you're basically building an object and then you can do different things with that 
And if, if it's not the right thing, you can then go and update it later on and build new versions of it that extend or add to the functionality. Uh, but, but I also think a lot of the data kind of science around today is, is very interesting because as a manager, you're often just dealing with big lists of data and you're trying to come up with some rules or some ideas about what can you do, right? If, if, if you're needing to improve certain things, it gives you a way to look at that, that as data and then think of what can I do and how can I measure if we're making a difference. Okay. Um, you're in the UK now, right? How, how yeah. did that happen? Uh, uh, well, I'll condense this down to the two-minute version, right? But uh, when, when I was working for my Australian software company back in the early days of my career, um, I, I saw an opportunity to go and help them around the world spread that message, right? They have proprietary software. You know, no one around the world really knows it, and they're trying to get the message out. So one way was to send people, right? So I, I first spent some time in the US. I spent some time in Germany and helped build up, you know, not just my knowledge and, and so on, but I help build up customer knowledge and you know, build up better relationships to those customers and make sure that they knew what we were selling. And then the time came for me to go to the next step, thinking about my personal life and everything, and I wanted to settle down somewhere. Uh, an opportunity presented itself to go to the UK, start up a new office, um, and I was working very closely with one salesperson, myself, and one services person, that was our business for the UK, and we had to grow it from there. So I got to know a real proper startup kind of environment, uh, proper teamwork, and, and also the idea of going beyond your role, right? Being able to, to do more than what it says just purely on your job description to, to get things done. Was that an Australian company you were working for that you went then to open their UK office, right? Okay. Yeah, so it, it received a lot of investment over time. A U.S. organization uh, was, was funding it, and, and the U.K. was, was then a, a big step forward for the organization in terms of growing in Europe and becoming a, a more, you know, you know, more successful organization at, at its I'm mission. always interested, Greg, in the track that takes people into startup operations and how that might influence how they act, think, behave as a leader. I'm curious to know if you see, if, if you could spot, if you were to be a fly on the wall in a room and spot people who had spent time at a startup versus leaders who only ever went through a standard corporate trajectory, for example, not this and that, it's its own path. I'm just curious to know if, you, if there's something in the, the startup, what it might give you that you could identify it in somebody. So I think leaders who've come up through a startup environment have had to do the individual job themselves. So there's a lot of that within them, right? They, they still know how to do it. some of the tasks. They, they get involved when they can. They go beyond um, maybe what you would expect a manager just to do all the time. And I think that is one of those things. But I guess to go to one of those organizations, you need to have that entrepreneurial kind of um, vision and skill, right, to, to go and, and take a bet on something to, to see what would happen if this is successful um, and, and build up from there. So I think those are good aspects for any leader is to think like a startup at times. But, but also I think there is a lot of good things that come from, from learning the art of management and taking some time to, to properly you know, think about your team, the employees, their backgrounds, because just because you come from a startup 
doesn't mean your individuals do. They, they might need mm. uh, you know, different kinds of support than what you mm. would as, as someone from a, a startup. And you spent, I guess, all of your professional life, well, most of it, I guess, in the pre-sales world. And as somebody who spent time in that myself, I'm, I'm interested in your take and your view on sales. Do you see them as a customer of pre-sales or as a partner? It's, I guess earlier in my career, I always thought of them more as the customer and that they would tell me what they wanted and I'd deliver mm -hmm. that and, and then walk away. But, you know, I think as time goes on, you realize that you're selling as a team, right? You're both working towards joint objectives and the true customer is not the sales rep. It is the actual customer that you're trying to sell with together. So I think, you know, that collaboration means you're trying to help them do their job better just as they're trying to help you with, with your role. And I think you form very strong partnerships and alliances with your sales reps in, in how you are delivering your, your individual roles and coming together. And I think when it works best, uh, both roles are actually celebrating the efforts of the other person in, in that and also seeing opportunities for those people to focus, right? So there's always, you know, different aspects going on in a customer account. You've got different stakeholders. Sometimes those stakeholders will react much better to someone of the technical side than they will to a commercial person and vice versa. So working together, you, you can identify how can you achieve your goals. And as somebody who works so closely with sales, but in another way, you're an observer at times. Where do sales need to do better? As, as, not as individuals, but as organizations and in terms of strategy yeah. and structure. Let me flip that around a little bit and say the salespeople I see doing the best, usually you know, their best skill is around qualification and forecasting. So really understanding what is going on in their account. And they might not have, say, a better success rate or a better um, you know, ability to close. They're just choosing better opportunities to try and do that with. And I think, you know, on a similar line, right, I think when things go off the wheels, that's when people get desperate. They chase opportunities they should never be chasing. They, they might not be for them. They might not be closable in the time that they're looking to close them. And so you end up in situations where, you're not going to be as successful and you spend a lot of your time on those situations. So I would say those, those are the key things for me. Is leading a pre-sales organization any different to leading a sales organization? I'd say it's got a lot of similarities, but I think leading a pre-sales organization, then your peers are the, the other sales leaders, but you also have a relationship to the individual sellers and you have a, a relationship to the pre-sales team as well. I think your role is in, in supporting the sales efforts going through those teams and making sure you're identifying good partners uh, within those organizations, right? So it, it is different, I would say. I, I haven't done the sales leadership role myself. Um, and you know, my, my influence to the sales leaders that I work with is to help them with their forecast help them understand the coverage of their territory and, and see what the op best opportunities uh, among the products, among the opportunities are. And so I think that's where the pre-sales leadership role fits and in. And what are the kind of things then, Greg, both work and non-work related, 
uh, motivate you personally? So obviously, family is always a, a, one of the biggest motivators. You know, why you go to work, it's to, to do things that are going to benefit your family, your own organization first. And, you know, to, to that end, right, you, you need to balance everything you're doing at work to does this take away from the, the ultimate reason why I'm around, right? I'm, I'm not around just to work 24 hours, seven days a week and close as many deals as possible. You, you need to work out where is the line that you should draw to, to the, the diminishing law of returns, right? How much effort is going to help um, before, you know, you, you start taking away from the other things mm. in your life. But, but I do think, I, I think a, a strong motivator for me is the success, right? I always feel the buzz, whether it's myself working on something directly, my team working on something, or a, a new person coming in and just getting on board and just getting those early first small wins for them. They always give me a, a huge buzz and seeing you know, that everyone in your team can be successful is an exciting yeah, I'm thing. interested in your thoughts as well, Greg, around where that line exists with the work-life balance. Um, and, and is it a gut feel you have about when you're over the line, is it more objective? You know, for some people it might be, I stop work at a certain given time and that's it. Others it's, well, it depends on the people, the, the context is important. Where's your line? It definitely depends on the people, right? You'll have some people in your team who work is a big focus for them right now. They want to be successful. They, they even want to put in the extra hours. So I, I'd look to not make, make sure you don't hold them back, but at least you, you, you help them understand when they're pushing too hard or when they're pushing what their behavior affects other people as well, right? So I think you, you need to help people see their lines, what, what they should be trying to do. Um, but then you'll have some team members where, you know, you have to appreciate what their efforts and what they're giving up. So, you know, are they doing something that is good enough, right? If, if they're doing something good enough and pushing themselves to the extent that they can, then, then that is worth it, right? As, as long as it's hitting your goals as a business and, and making it worthwhile them being a part of the team. But you have to appreciate everyone's putting in their personal best efforts. What was it like for you then when you went from individual contributor in a pre-sales role into one where you're now managing others and trying to get the best out of them? What were the, air, the things or the skills that you felt Maybe you thought you had them, but you, you discovered that there was a, a gap there or something that you needed to work on that uh, helped you get where you are today. Yeah, I, I think any strong individual will think that their main job when they become a leader is just to be a super strong individual and, and help out wherever they can. Mm. And, and that is, you know, be, you know, put in the effort where others can't. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Right, so you still might have some great presentation skills and you might have some great demo and technical skills and you will get the chance to pitch in with them sometimes. But your number one has to be, you know, going back to your individuals, spending time with them. I mean, if I am too busy, the last thing I would give up is that one-to-one -one time with the individuals in my team. I'd prioritize that so that each of those individuals can be working at 100% of their best and only then, if I've got spare time after, mm. you know, looking after the individuals, should I be able to spend that myself on extending and, and working out forwards. But you always know if you're too busy to look after your team, 
then that's going to have negative consequences, right? Your team won't be able to act at 100%. You might lose individuals. They might say that you never had time for them, you know, that you, you weren't there to help them. And, and that, you know, that's a failure as a manager then, in, in any role, I yeah, imagine. Sure. Uh, when you think back, Greg, about some of the things that you might do differently, what, what are your takeaways in terms of biggest lessons that you've learned in your career? I think one thing is to, to try and work out when are people ready for the delegated tasks that you want to give them. Um, if you, you know, often you, they're ready before you know it, right? It, you can't wait just to look for the evidence to know that they're ready. You need to have somewhat of an intuitive feel that if I give them this slightly bigger task or this massively bigger task, how will they do about it? And be there for them, you know, if they fail completely, be there for them if they want just a little bit of advice or just be there for them in case, right? They might not want the help. They might be ready to just take it all on. But I'd say my biggest failings have been not realizing people were ready for some bigger challenges earlier on. And how does that manifest itself? Is it um, you doing the work for them or not delegating to them? Just curious about that. How, how, how do yeah. you know? You know because you're always busy and maybe team members are not always busy. They might be coming to you saying, is there anything more I can do? Right? And it's great to have highly motivated individuals, but your job as a manager is to make sure that they, they are you know, fully occupied with the challenges that are appropriate for them. So looking after your team, you know, their workload, making sure that their access to challenges is there. I'd say one thing as a leader, right, you, you have the best access to all of the teams, right? You know all the sales reps. They'd probably answer any call if you called them or, or pick up the phone and call you if they need you. But you, as a manager, you have to not assume that they call you, they want your help, but they're calling you because they want some help. And your job is then to find them um, the best kind of help that, that will scale with time, mm. right? And help you build a better team, help you provide for their future needs. Uh, and if you're doing really well, they don't actually need to call you because they already know where that help's coming from, who they're working with, and that you know, things are, are relatively balanced. There, there seems to be a kind of a paradox in there. While I know that your, your work is never done, it's almost as like you're trying to make yourself redundant in some way and, mm -hmm. and yet, yet yet you can never get there but it's almost like this this quest <laughs> is that a fair perspective on it I, I think so i i think i think you're doing well if you're not too busy right if you feel like you're too busy then you you obviously haven't done the right things or maybe you, you've just not asked mm. the organization for enough resources to to fulfill the mission um I guess that the mission of pre-sales is a funny one, right? Because it can be, in some organizations, quite narrow. Your job might be just to work on qualified opportunities and hand them off to the rep once they're, they're close to closure, right? You're, you're probably not doing full end-to-end. -end. But in other companies, pre-sales can get involved in marketing events. They can get in, into early stage qualifying. You could be doing demos very early. You could be doing you know, proof of concepts and customer trials very early in an unqualified sense. And it's when you're failing is you're doing too much out of sequence, oh. right? And when you do it out of sequence, it costs you time and it probably costs you money in terms of the things you can't do. 
Yeah, uh, I, and what I'm thinking as, as you're talking about this, Greg, is the number of times I've seen in my training career working with sales teams, and I've worked with pre-sales teams, is the deals that are thrown over the fence because they're, they're definitely unqualified. I think perhaps, and I, and I wanted to get your take on this, is it that the salesperson doesn't know how to qualify or sometimes is being lazy and just, just oh, let's just do the demo because they asked for one. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how you then, what you said to your pre-sales people in terms of pushback on that and, and how you qualify the sales qualification. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's usually either there's a lack of ownership, like no one really knows who's who's responsible for the opportunity at its home, or it could be a lack of knowledge as well, right? Someone lacks the personal knowledge or ability to go and qualify it stronger um, or, or you know, do whatever the stage of the opportunity is, do what things you can for that customer at that time. But also misinterpreting those signals, as you say, I want a demo. I mean, most most software companies have a, a marketing lead generation on their website which says ask for a demo or ask for a, a trial or, or things like that. And I think even though that's what you, you've received, you then need to interpret that request, shape it up and understand how can we best deal with it. And you know, if, if you're a company that only deals with Fortune 100 customers and you get a, a, a query from a corner shop saying we want a demonstration or we want a trial of your big expensive solution, then it, it might be more of an education thing, right? Here's some of our materials. It looks like you're, you know, you know, you'd need to, you know, be this ready to enter into a contract with us on this thing. Is that something you're interested in? And you can get the customer. I mean, most buyers are very willing to qualify their mm. time. I, I know I am, right? When anyone approaches me, I'm very ready to to say, well, if if it's this is the situation, then I might be ready mm. to proceed. And I think a good salesperson good pre-sales as well, is good at positioning that back to their customers or their prospects is, you know, can you, can you qualify yourself in, first of all? Having been that soldier in terms of demos and on both sides, I, I've kind of gotten, I think, pretty right wing on the whole idea of, of demos. Meaning that, actually, I want to get your take on this. So I read this story about Otis the guy who invented, not the lift, but it was actually the emergency brake for the elevators. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I think the tallest buildings, the highest uh, skyscrapers, like the, well, there were skyscrapers, there were seven stories high, and it was because br- lifts didn't have brakes and there were dangers and people died and so on. This guy comes along, invents this emergency brake, and in order to demonstrate it, he built this massive like 100 foot high platform at the World Trade Fair back in 1870 something I can't remember but but mm. it was the, the idea that he was so confident in his new product but dealing with a skeptical audience whose I guess was life was on the line the way he demonstrated it was built this platform told everybody to be there stood on the platform 100 feet above everybody drum roll cut the rope lift falls and stops and everybody you know and mm. and i remember reading that and i and i thought you know that's it that's that's the only ge- legitimate reason to give a demo is where you've got a skeptical audience because if you're working for a large organization 
uh, a known organization, they know your products work. They only have to talk to any number of thousands of customers. Are there other reasons? I, 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 I presume there has to be, but... Yeah, so um, I guess, you know, that, that's talking from a point of view of more of a, a trial, right? <laughs> You're actually testing mm. it out on a real life situation and just also goes to show pre-sales has been around a lot longer than many people think. Uh, but the, I would say often you can use your demonstration as a way to, to build up the customer value, right? So your customer might believe that there's one or two reasons they're interested in your product. When you show them the third or the fourth reason, they just realize, uh-huh, th there's a lot more to this than I realized. And it helps you, you know, narrow the fields potentially, right? There might be other ways they were thinking of solving their initial problem. But when you put it together, you're building up a bigger story, a bigger kind of you know, challenge for them. And it, you know, most organizations would actually rather have fewer solutions overall. So if you can solve more problems than they know about, then, then you help build yourself into their portfolio. I would imagine as well, when it's done right, it can also help a sales organization prior, find out the priorities of the issues and challenges rather than just assuming that they're all equal, that you can, you know, which one would you like to start with? And that's going to be the priority one. Um, that's right. And these days, buyers go a long way themselves too, right? So they've gone and done a lot of research. They've un understood maybe more of the market yeah. than, than you realize, would have in yeah. the past. And so sometimes you do need to reframe a little bit. So they were thinking of solving their challenge one way. Again, you, you by reframing, bringing them back in, you, know, you might help them understand a better way of solving those problems. Past or present, Greg, who inspires you and why oh wow um th this is always a good one i i feel like well my australian colleagues would love me if i, I call out steve war as one of the most fantastic gritty cricket captains australia ever had in that he was able to to really get into the mind of the opposition you know and take take on really tough situations and and you know last them out uh, but also, you know, know how to keep pressing an advantage at, and, and choosing his right moments. So for me, you know, as a, a decade or more of watching him play cricket was was amazing to me. Um, but, you know, there are many others, you know, I've worked with some amazing people in pre-sales. So I, I don't want to call one of them out because it, it might make the others feel a little bit left out too. So basically anybody, Greg, if they've ever known you <laughs> in your career, this goes out to them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think everyone out yeah. there. I, I think, you know, for me currently, um, the people who've you know, created the whole organization around mm. pre-sales collective um, and getting pre-sales individuals in the industry mm. to start thinking as a unit, mm. you know, to start working together to develop themselves, build up, you know, relationships to other you know, pre-sales people, but also hone their skills together. I feel like it actually helps sales in general because you're putting pre-sales onto the map as a, a stronger relationship uh, to sales executives mm -hmm. as well. And I think, you know, I'd call out James Kakis for, for starting that organization up and, and everyone else in, in mm -hmm. his team. Any historical figures come to mind? Hmm. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great history involved. Uh, I, I don't 
I don't think I have a great one just to call out just around pre-sales in general. No, but, just, uh, just you know. sorry, I should have made that bit clearer. Um, just in terms of you, yourself, not pre-sales, just use it as an individual kind of people that you, you have looked to in the past. Or maybe if you had somebody you may never meet, right? Not like a mentor, but just this kind of, I don't want to call them a hero, but some individual whose values you admire and respect, and maybe you would seek their counsel if you ever had their telephone number, past or present, but nothing to do with pre-sales. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'd call out Nelson Mandela, right? He, he really went and changed the world. The, the world was looking really bad, unequal, you know, people getting treated really badly, himself included. And you know, he, he toughed it out and he, he's gone and changed the world. And I think, you know, if you look at the level of work around equality and, and inclusiveness around the world and diversity in mm. teams, uh, this is all, you know, deeply rooted in how have we made the world a better mm. place? And I, I would call him out as someone who epitomizes that. we talk that. about that a little in terms of the modern workplace? What are the kind of changes you've seen over the years that you look at and go, that's really good? and then maybe kind of where you'd like to see it go. Yeah, so I think women in technology is one of those areas. Um, my, I was lucky enough to be hired by a woman and have a woman as my first mentor in pre-sales and then to, to work under another strong woman in pre-sales for a long part of my career. And you know, the, this is not normal, right? If you look around the world today, about 15 to 20% of pre-sales individuals and managers are, are women. And, you know, it's an example of that diversity. You know, there are a lot of amazing qualities out there in people that, that should get a chance to rise in, the, in their career. And I think what organizations need to do is just work out ways of breaking that bias and not hiring just from your network, not hiring just from people who've studied in a particular course, but looking out for those uh, those competencies that you truly want to build a team. But upon. if you're looking, say, you're coming from a world of coders, people who've done engineering, then you are drawing on a pool that's predominantly male or ma male in terms of maths, physics. Uh, in terms of the intake, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I encourage women you know, uh, to go into those fields at the, the onset. Yeah. But I think at, at a hiring level, you can't just go and say, we're only hiring coders for this mm. role. I, at the end of the day, a, a pre-sales role is a role about communication, right? And as I said at the beginning, you know, I, I studied maths and computer science. I used very little of those skills in the first five years of my career. I think once I, mm. I got started, I was learning how to tell people about these concepts how to do some rudimentary kind of value propositions for people. Mm. I didn't need, you know, deeply advanced calculus mm. to understand how is my software saving someone some money. Or what I needed yeah. more of was those communication skills to be able to talk about it. That's an interesting take because in, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's sales job. And I know pre-sales exists as part of the sales organization, so I'm not saying that. But in my mind, the pre-sales organization always had the product knowledge that the sales organization didn't have, and the, not just the knowledge of the product, but how that might fit into the client's ecosystem. Yeah. I'm curious to know, in terms of the people you hire, that how many of the pre-sales 
don't have some technical engineering background because that that's I'd never thought about that before and I'm curious about it I think we're certainly increasing the percentage I would say maybe 20 to 40 percent of my team don't come from a traditional engineering mathematics kind of background and you know among them are some of the strongest mm. individuals you know I've seen people come into pre-sales through you know things as varied as drama and, and really? journalism as, as areas. And those people, their communication skills have been amazing. Yeah. Right. No, so I, I get, being I, able yeah, to convert. I, I get the yeah. communications and, and, and I can, and I can see where you're going. I would never have thought of that. That's I've learned something new today because in my, I guess my, maybe it's, maybe it's an age thing or maybe it's just how I came into pre-sales yeah. was that, there was always an assumption in my mind that they would have come from uh, an engineering, some kind of engineering, either soft or hard engineering, it doesn't matter. Never looked at it the other way. That's yeah. really interesting. That Well, many do, yeah. many do. But, but the other side is you can hire from the domain area of your customers mm. as well, right? If you're looking for people who buy like from people like themselves, if you find some really strong customer advocates... Mm. Uh, regardless of their background, these people could be amazing in a pre-sales role. So where would you like to see it go? How, what, what changes would you like to see in place over the next few years? I, I think we're on the path, right, that, that pre-sales are really developing themselves, they're growing as individuals, and then they're stepping out from just being brought in in a transactional or a task-orientated way they're looking to come in and help partner with the sales reps, as we were talking about in the beginning. And I think that goes two ways even, right? I think sales representatives probably also need to be more able to cover some of those technical aspects, you know, go deeper into the deal, um, you know, as well as the pre-sales people being more appreciative of the commercial aspects, what, what really helps us sell this better to the customer, what, what kind of contracts are we trying to land on and therefore how do we how do we keep that in mind whilst we're working through the early stages of an opportunity mm. and and i think you know that pre-sales emphasis is just that these people become more um, more influential to the customers even without being mm. in the room right they can add content that gets used at all stages of the opportunity uh, and then that that they also have the the ear of the the sales leadership to be able to help build up better understandings of what does our business look like, how can we plan better for the future, and how do we build build up quicker and stronger in terms of scalability. Makes sense. Um, there was a question I had now I wanted to ask, and it's gone straight out of my mind. And if you were a minister of education and you could make any subject mandatory on the school curriculum, what would it be and why? Oh, I, I love giving choices to people, actually. So I, I, I don't know if I'd want to make one thing absolutely mandatory, but if everyone had you know, more coding skills or more understanding on how does uh, software help the world, I think you know, making sure that that's included. I, I don't think it would be a, a single topic. I think it should be spread across all of the other topics, that if you're studying business then part of your studies of business should be an understanding of how what computer software can help my business mm -hmm. run better and how should I as a business owner you know, 
be be self-aware and and able to build that stuff myself as you said that just this thought flashed across my mind which was when i was as good it's still true here maths is a mandatory subject um maths english and, and gaelic but i hated maths in school i was never very good at it but i loved coding and and i mm-hmm. think what the coding did for me was which maths never did was it tapped into create my creativity that you're a problem solving yeah. that you had a, it wasn't just that you, you you had a problem to solve but then you could see that that the solution manifests itself and you you go through all of the the uh, you know you're banging the table because you thought you got it you tested it doesn't work <laughs> you, you can tell you've been there right and then and then yeah. and then it works and there's that eureka moment and you're on a cloud nine and maths never did that for me because it was here's pythagoras theorem you had to learn it off or you had to go resolve some calculus and my mind would just kind of go why am i even learning this but also but also mm-hmm. the idea of say resolving some calculus problem was there was a predefined solution to it you 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 had to follow the rules of of the, the maths to to get there and that's what you were praised for yeah, it teaches yeah. you and yeah. and rewarded for but with coding was so so different you you had to look at each problem uniquely to come up and come up with a solution but you also then had to learn values like persistence and to, yeah. that that you didn't get necessarily with maths and I, that's why i think that would be a great topic to i certainly agree uh, i think maybe just mathematics wasn't taught in a you know in a a modern kind of way no for then, sure right? that's As another well, thing it was chalk the, chalk you know chalk on a blackboard yeah absolutely yeah. um because i i feel like much of the higher level math that i did at university would be much more interesting to the kids at school than a lot of the calculus mm-hmm. and and just you know pythagoras as you say trigonometry all of those things you know through school they put you through a lot of different things that aren't that closely connected in mathematics mm-hmm. and then you know later on you know it's really just to assess should you study math more right if they had a test that could just tell you that mm-hmm. at the beginning then maybe they could save a lot of you know young yeah. teenagers a lot of angst of yeah. trying to work out their calculus and the other downside which i don't know that was acknowledged is that when you you got to a point where you just didn't get it it wasn't working you then felt stupid and and you just mm-hmm. you didn't just get to leave that at the door of the maths class that that sense of self identity is you know not not clever enough maybe stupid yeah. went to other classes as well so it it was, could be quite damaging in terms of how it was taught so yeah. absolutely and i've met so many really smart people in business who were never strong in math when they grew up but they are absolutely clever when it comes to yeah. business yeah i i sorry this just felt like a therapy session for me there for a second <laughs> T- tell me greg what do you like to do to unwind and relax when you're not working uh my absolute favorite part of the year is when i book myself to go ski snowboarding for a week and just try and you know explore and adventure and understand you know and you know go around a mountain all on my own right so that is one of my absolute number okay, but one. you didn't grow up with snow um 
guessing. <laughs> not not within a, a nine-hour yeah. drive anyway. So, yeah, I, I started relatively late to, to snowboarding. But, you know, I, I guess growing up around Sydney, what I did like was, you know, climbing into the hills and, and walking around the Blue Mountains and, and on the beaches and, and places like that. So I really loved nature and getting out and enjoying that. So I'd st- say that still is with me and on an everyday kind of basis – I enjoy long walks with my dog or going for a run or things like that. I feel really good when I'm out in touch with nature. You've never lost the outdoor, the love of the outdoors then, not even in London. Is it London you're in or outside of London? I, I'm in outside of London in Berkshire. Okay. But, um, you know, I'll go mountain biking for, for a morning on the weekend and, and you get completely muddy and I'll do this in the middle of winter with ice on the ground and things like that. It's It's not a problem. It's... It's just a, how you enjoy yourself, I guess. And if you weren't working, if you were, if you were financially independent and your time in the, in the corporate world had to come to an end, what would you like to do with yourself? I think it would be an endless travel kind of situation for me, just trying to explore and you know, travel as gently and slowly around the world as possible, okay. to be honest. To try and see the real beauty Most of the world. Most interesting place on in the planet you've been to then? Vietnam. Um, why Vietnam? I've never been there. I'm... It's, I think the human side has changed a lot, right? So it's actually you know, been, I think you're, you're in your last few years of seeing it as a truly, you know, transformation from, um, you know, the, the, the events of the 70s right up to, to now. But it's, got beautiful beaches beautiful people you know they're happy to talk to you you go to markets you get to interact with hundreds and hundreds of people around you know buying different things but they've got beautiful islands um, you know boats and things like that so there's so much to see um, and the beauty and the contrast between um, the ancient world and the current world and the, the future world if you like of of how how they're developing it so for me, it's an, a really exciting and changing place. And if there was a, pl- a place that you haven't been to that you would really like to get to? Do you know I've not explored much of Africa, and for me, there is so much of interest there. Mm. So that would be high up on my list. Yeah, that I could imagine that could take the rest of your life. Really good. Actually, it's <laughs> exactly. funny. I mean, Africa is massive. I even look at Ireland, which is a small country, and I look at all the places that I still haven't been to. And then I think, yep. what would it be like if I lived in a continent the size of Africa and, and just said, okay, I'm going to... You just couldn't. Not in a lifetime. Not in a lifetime. You'd need many yeah. lifetimes to see everything, yeah. I'm yeah. sure. So big game hunting, traveling around. Yeah. I've only been there. I've been to South Africa, and I was in, um, in Namibia. Namibia. Uh, Namibia yeah. was a really interesting country as well, but again, that was a couple of decades ago. Um, what's next for you, Greg? What would you like to do professionally um, as a sort of a, a next project in, in, over a few years? Yeah, I, you know, I'm certainly excited about my current you know, role in, in terms of growing a, a large organization across Europe. Uh, for me, it's always been exciting working in the emerging mm-hmm. markets for an organization, developing things that work elsewhere and, and bringing them into Europe and trying to translate that value to the local organization. I'd certainly love the challenge to do that, you know, to help the organization grow and, and you know, do that at a higher level. Um, I'd love the opportunity to work 
you know, as a you know pre-sales leader for an organization and, and you know, aspire to, to help, you know, step up into one of the more C-level roles that a pre-sales mm -hmm. leader could grow into. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, I admire the work of, of chief revenue officers, of chief operations officers and people like that. And, you know, in the long-term goal, I, I think that and, would be an interesting And how do you see, other than towards. scale, how do you see those roles being different to the one that you have currently? I think you've got uh, a, a remit across a broader range of things, right? So you need to be, you know, very aware of what's going on in all of the different aspects. Mm. You know, are you suffering? Where are the bottlenecks in the business? Are you suffering because of the amount of leads coming in? Are you suffering because you can't convert those leads? Are you suffering to deliver to your customers the, the promises that your sales team are, are giving? Um, are your customers eventually just deciding that they've had enough of the value mm and there's nothing more for them, right? So understanding that complete angle um, is really exciting to me. I think you know, there, there's a lot of value that a software business can give to its customers, but you need to stay on top of it and understand what is going on at all parts of their life cycle. I'm curious as well, is because it was a topic I was talking about somebody recently and I was surprised by their answer. And so without giving any names and instances away, have you ever worked with a customer that you felt afterwards was a mistake? Not because of technical fit infrastructure, just there wasn't the right business fit in terms of philosophy, styles, etc. And and if so, why? Yeah. So I think you know it depends what you're trying to achieve as a business. Uh, but but sometimes you know your product might not be a great fit just purely because the goals of the organization don't match up with with the, the way that you're trying to deliver value. And I think the best companies are the ones that realize this early in their sales cycle and tell the customer, look, it, we don't think we're a good match for you and walk cool. away. Um, and if you can direct them in a better direction, I think it's probably best for you because you do spend, if you think about it over the years of a customer life cycle, you spend a lot of time with customers. And if you're spending time with customers who aren't your focus, who aren't you know, going to help you build a better product for the future, then then chances are you're you're going to come up with a worse product purely by trying to keep those wrong customers happy. Mm. So I think if you've got a very clear vision, you you need to stay true to that and and try to keep to the the core vision of of what you're trying to give to and your. I'm customers. wondering then who has to make that assessment because it's unlikely to be the sales rep. Not the individual sales reps, I'm sure. I mean, they will take some convincing that mm. it's not necessarily the right opportunity for them. Um, but, you know, if I, I guess part of it comes down to incentive as well. If you incentivize, you know, sales reps and sales teams, you know, pre-sales included, on the long-term customer value to the business, then that might help you make some of those better mm. calls, right? I, I've seen, you know, in times in the past, in the distant past, I've seen deals made which are really barely good, right? They're barely good because you had to throw a lot of extra services in or you had to, to sell them products that you weren't sure if you wanted to still sell or things like that. And it just you know, makes a deal that it's hard to see who this actually gives value to in the long makes run. Makes sense. Uh, what's your own personal definition of success? Other than just the numbers, I, I think it's about seeing my team do well. And that's 
all aspects, right? You want to see the top performers doing great because they're up to it, but you also want to see the the new people in the team or the people who have struggled in the past. You want to see them find their wins as well. So you, you want a broad range of success around the team and not just all concentrated on on just the numbers. I have two final questions for you. Uh, first one is this: If your house were on fire, burning down, and all your possession—I was just, anyway, your pets, family—they're safe, um, and your phone, of course, and your and your laptop are safe. <laughs> I, I, well, it's <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny. I've always had to put that in there because it's the when I ask the question, the first thing people will say is my phone. <laughs> so my question is: If you had time to run back in and save one item. What would it be and why? It'd be a photograph album. And it would be just that, you know, even if I had digital copies of those pictures, I feel like the arrangement that you get in that album, um, someone, and not necessarily me, because I'm terrible at putting together Mm -hmm. these photo albums, but my mother gave me an album of my wedding and she's written sentences about each page, you know, you know, little quotes she heard on the day, oh, things fabulous. like that. Yeah. Um, it, and you just can't no. replace it, right? I could go and photograph it, but it still wouldn't mm. feel the same as, as going through it like that. Yeah, that's, I've never heard that answer before because if people talk about photographs, the, their assumption is, yeah, you can digitize them and that's fine, but they're only talking about the photograph. What you're talking about is, is, is so much more um, that you're right, can't be replaced. Um, yeah. Yeah. These days you have terabytes yeah. and gigabytes of, of photos, yeah. right? But it's you, you need to actually choose Ooh. them, right? You can't just dump a you know a, a Google drive of photos on someone and say, Oh, have a look at my my you know holiday photos. They'll only look at it if you put it together in a way that makes right. sense for them you're, as a you're as so a right. It has to, to be it. curated and done in a way that you're right, that makes sense. That's not higgledy-piggledy all over the place that, you, you know, you're outside, then you're, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. Uh, I just hadn't thought about it that way as a, as a sort of a, an, an item to treasure, but you're right. Um, okay, then final question. When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of the book to be? Where? Where? Just a question. Where? where? Okay. As in, where <laughs> are you now? Where did you come or, from? Or where next? Where next? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe where next would be a better title. Yeah. I like that. Because at least it's really open to interpretation. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's also concise. I love it. With that, Greg Holmes, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much, Paul. Great to be here.